0: Good morning, everybody. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, uh, boy, it's already wor- well worth your uh, price of admission this morning. Gosh, little Mabel, so great, and the Groots and our worship team. And then we're going to land the plane with me. Are you so fired up? It's so great. Hey, um, well, it's summer, and uh, I love summer. Does anyone else in here love summer? Okay, what are some of the, your most favorite things about summer? Give, give them to me. Sun. The beach. The Russian River fruit. We live in California, we get fruit all the time. But uh, yeah, well for me, I love summer and uh, my favorite thing about summer is love and uh, summer, the summer of love and weddings happen in summer. My uh, 21st wedding anniversary happened. This was uh, before Pinterest, before you could find all the cool ways to make things really great. We just took this picture. Isn't this great? For 21 years, we cut a cake. We don't even know why we did that. Um, but I uh, How many of you, anyone who's married, have anniversaries in the summer? Summer people, ever been to, anyone been to a wedding this summer even already? Yeah, it's so great. Um, What I think is so great about a wedding is it's a ceremony, it's this beautiful beautiful picture, right? Everyone gets really dressed up. The, the bride and the groom, they get um, all dressed up and they, have, they stand before each other and they say, I commit to love you and to cherish you and to be with you forever and ever. They get friends to stand up alongside them and to stand up and basically you're supposed to say, because we are committed to being with you. To walk through life forever and ever with you. And then all these friends and family, they sit in the crowd and they sit and they enjoy this ceremony, which is so beautiful, saying, Man, we are all in with you. And what's so fun about a wedding is it's such a wide variety of people. And the one thing they have in common is that they love this groom and they love this bride and they want to give their support to them. And it is this beautiful, beautiful ceremony. But anyone who's ever been to a wedding or been married or been in a relationship for a long time knows that soon after that, you know that's a great picture, but real life kind of gets to be kind of hard. And, uh, and as I was flipping through our, uh, our wedding album, I came across this picture. This was our wedding party uh, back in the mid-90s. Yes, it was super great. Uh, we just missed the little crown era. So those of you got married in the crown era, sorry about that. Um, but our wedding party was so large, some of those guys even got cut off. And uh, the way it worked is Katie had a ton of friends, and I had to go to like third-tier level friends to be groomsmen. And I looked at this picture, and I was like— I don't even think I know some of their names. And, um, and what's wild is 21 years later, I'm looking at this grouping of people, and there's, we have a couple family members, and of those family members, two of them we still talk to. And then there's one person who's still on my cell phone and one person who's still on Katie's cell phone. Some of those people are all over the world. Some are married. Some are, you know, it's all, they're just totally scattered. But what's wild is 21 years ago, I thought, here we are. We have this picture and this ceremony where we are joining our lives and we are going to live a unified life in Christ, a unified marriage. And we're going to have these friends that we're going to do life together with. And it was going to be great. But 21 years later, right? Right? Everyone's kind of gone their separate ways. And over 21 years, like that unity that we thought was going to be that thing kind of dissolved and and everyone went their separate ways. And that is because I think it is so hard for people to live in unity. We long to live in unity. We long that we think these celebrations of unity are so beautiful. But real life is so hard. And because real life is so hard, we just kind of end up drifting away and going in our separate directions. But when people can live together in unity— it is this hallmark. It is a unique thing. It is a special, God-given thing that actually makes people, like, stand back and notice. And with um, this—today we're going to look at a really short Psalm, so you'll be thankful for that. It's Psalm 133, and we're going to look at a couple quick points that are really easy and cool to understand and one really hard way to put that into practice. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 133, and we're going to take a look at this beautiful poem about unity. So Psalm 133 says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil that's poured on the head, that's running down the beard, running down the beard of Aaron, running down on his collar and his robe. And it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. What a short and beautiful psalm. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, this is the NIV. and In some older translations, it will say, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And there's this Hebrew word, hine, that was taken away from the NIV for some reason. But it's important because hine, behold. Wait, when you behold something, it's like something that's spectacular. It's unique. You don't just say, behold, I got see on my math test. Like, no one cares that you got see on a math test. But behold is something that's unique. It's fabulous. It's spectacular. And when God's people actually live together in unity, it is something to behold because we live in a context and in a world that is so tribal, that is so fractured, that is so disunified in every way that when people can come together and live in unity, it is something to behold. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And what's incredible is it's it's this picture that is the dream of God since the beginning. Even God's very character, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, three persons, one God. Somehow, like some theologians call it, this community of faith, this community of Godhead. that, That God in his very character is a unified being. It's too hard to understand and people have been burned at the stake for getting it wrong. So we just trust that it's a mystery and how it works. But in God's very character, there's this three persons, one being. God longs for his people. In the psalm, David is saying, behold, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. Jesus' prayer in John 17, at the end of his life, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying for his believers, and he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me, and I am in you. That was Jesus' prayer for us. Not that we would go and we would change the world and and that we would glorify God's name forever and ever, which would be great, and that's kind of in the scripture. But Jesus' one prayer was that God's people would be one. Paul goes on in Romans and says that we're the body of Christ. And even though we're the body of Christ and we have all these different members, we actually belong to one another. And so when God's people live together in unity, we are now a testimony of God's goodness and God's grace and the reality of his existence. Because nowhere in the world do people live in unity. And when we, from all of our different backgrounds and all of our different places in the world, can come together and be united united under Christ, boy, that is something to behold. So it says how good and pleasant it is for those, uh, for when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil that's poured out on the head, running down on the beard, down onto Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. What an awesome picture. I mean, it's so different for us. Like, we don't, we don't live this way. Um, but it's, it's, it's a ceremonial blessing of, of the grace of God. See, what was happening was once a year, the high priest would stand um, and be anointed with oil. Do you have this picture? I mean, sorry, it's in Leviticus uh, verse 17. It says this. I mean, Le- Leviticus 16. Uh, It says that the priest is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as the high priest, and he is to make an, an atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garments and to make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priest and all the members of the community. And this is to be a lasting ordinance. It was this ceremony, it was this ritual that happened once a year where they would dump oil all over the priest. And it was this recognition, it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of God being poured out onto this priest to do this sacred task. And his sacred task was to stand in the gap between this holy God and these sinful, rebel-rousing people. And he was to offer sacrifices for them so that they could be reconciled. And it was a ceremony. It was a -a once-a-year thing. It'd be so weird if every day one of the priests would just wake up and dump oil all over his head and down his beard. And, you know, it'd be so great. Not really. I mean, doing laundry back then was way hard. It would not be great if that was done every single day. But because it was done once a year, it was this ceremony that mattered. And so when the psalmist says it's like oil that's poured out on the head and down on the beard, it was a ceremony that brought them back to this picture of what it could be. And we do this every Sunday. Sunday we come and we gather and worship and we tell a story. We tell a story of God's goodness, of God's grace of we worship Jesus and we want to come before Him and have Him save us and change us and transform us and send us into the world. Like, that's the story we tell week in and week out. But it's it's, it's a sacred ceremony. That's all it is. Because then we spend the rest of our lives living how we need to live. Um, I love, a couple weeks ago, Art was talking about how everybody is welcome. And everyone's like, yes, amen. Everybody is welcome. And what's so funny is like, we're so like, I don't even know what the right word, because all my words are so pejorative about it. But it's like, so lame that we're so proud of ourselves that we can with our words say, yes, for one hour I can tolerate people who are different than me and who sit on the other side of the sanctuary from me and we can sing songs together. Yeah. That is like the worst. No, but it's a picture. We tell ourselves that. We tell the story that everybody is welcome, that Jesus wants everyone to come before Him and worship and be saved by Him, and we tell the story over and over and over again. Right? We tell the story of our church loving Mabel and wanting to invite her into the family of God and we're going to care for her and love her when she runs around and breaks things and goes crazy. Right? We tell the story. It's our ceremonial story that we tell over and over again that we lean into. Because when we leave this place and Mabel goes crazy and breaks stuff and, right, and the person at church that you didn't that we said everyone's welcome backs into your car and doesn't leave a note, Right, then all of a sudden the wheels come off. And that is where it gets hard. Because this idea of unity is not just this picture of grace. Unity is also the work of Jesus. The only way that unity happens is not just having our our head around it, but it's also um, having um, the work of Jesus. I love this picture. this picture of this old guy drawing a heart for his wife. I mean, look at these guys. They still have it. It's so romantic. Whenever I think of old people in love, I always think of art. Art is my favorite old guy who's in love. He's, uh, he's been married 40 years. That's, that's so long. And, uh, and can you imagine being married to Art for 40 years? I mean, that's like, that's like my dream. I'm just, I would love to be that. But if you've, ever been in a, if you've ever been married, if you've ever been in a long-term relationship, if you've ever shared space with anybody for any moment of time, you know that it is so hard, that we are selfish and broken people. And all we do is bump into each other, hurt each other, crush each other, destroy one another. Like that is how we're wired. So if there's going to be grace and mercy and love and tenderheartedness, there has to be some sort of trick. And the trick is not trying harder. The trick is recognizing that we are broken people and we are in desperate need of a Savior. And this idea of this oil that's poured out on the head, that's poured down on the beard, it's not just poured out on the beard, it's poured down on Aaron's beard. And I don't think David understood exactly what he was saying, but people who are living on this side of Jesus and the resurrection know that Aaron was the high priest. He was the great high priest. He was the first person in the priesthood to make space, to say, listen, people, you are sinful and broken and there needs to be atonement for your sin. And I'm going to show you how to do that through the sacrificial system. Well, Jesus becomes the ultimate high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to this faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace To help us in our time of need. Because this idea of unity, this ceremonial calling out that we are to live as as unified people is great for this one moment that we're sitting in church. But how do we live real life and live unified in, in real life? And the only way that I know of is through Jesus. You see, Jesus, in his atonement as the great high priest, has forgiven all of your sins has forgiven all of my sins. And the Christian testimony is not that we stand on our rights and that we prove how great and noble we are, but because of Jesus and because of His saving work in us, we now offer that grace and that mercy to other people. We forgive as Christ has forgiven us, right? That is the Christian discipline and it is not normal. The world that we live in is not about forgiveness and grace. It is about my rights, my things. Everyone is lawyering up for the smallest things. And we as Christians, the way we live in unified lives is to recognize that Jesus has saved us, not just saved me, but forgiven all of my sins. And because my gigantic debt has been paid, my tiny little infraction that you've done to me, even if you've dented my car, is forgiven. And I'm called to forgive you as well. Forgiveness and mercy is the only way that broken people can actually live unified. So there's this picture, right, that the oil is poured out on his head and down the beard and down Aaron's beard, down the high priest's beard, down the collar. It's this overwhelming, generous picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and offering reconciliation with God. And then the author gives this other picture. It says that it's like the dew of Hermon is flowing down to Mount Zion. Now, Hermon and Mount Zion may not mean that much to you. It doesn't even mean that much to me. But if you have one of those old Bibles, and you look in the back of the Bible map, you see that Mount Hermon is the very top of Israel. And Mount Hermon is, a mount, is one of the highest mountain ranges. Um, and it almost always has snow on it. And it's from Mount Hermon, and it's from the snow and the rain and the dew of Mount Hermon that trickles down, that begins the Jordan River, that nourishes all of Israel, that ends up at Mount Zion where God's people come and gather and give glory to God and celebrate God goodness and grace. That one little thing, what is it like when God's people live together in unity? It's like when the dew of Hermon trickles down into the Jordan River, which is life, which is productivity, which is goodness and grace, down to Mount Zion where God's people give God worship and glory because of God's goodness. And so when we're called to, to be people who live in unity, we're not just called to live life together, but we're also called to go and do things, to be God's hands and feet, to be nourished and to be sent out. Um, I, I love that um, all over Scripture, when it talks about what, what this looks like, it's not about doing, 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 but it's about becoming. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That, like the psalmist said, when we're like a tree that's planted by the water, the Holy Spirit nourishes us. And now we can live in a way in which we can actually do the things of God, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and expand His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because don't get me wrong, we are not called just to sit here and to worship, which is so great. And we're not called to just come to Bible studies and mind the depths of God's riches, which is great. But we are called to be sent people, to be Jesus' hands and feet, to see the people on the fringe of society, to see the poor and the marginalized, the people who have no voice, the people who are stepped on and stepped over. And it is our job as God's people to see them and extend God's grace and mercy to them. But we can't just do that and be jerks about it. We have to do that in a way that is changed and nourished and motivated by the Holy Spirit. I have one last quick thing. When I was uh, Google Imaging searches some things for this, I, I Googled uh, Unity, and the Google image searches of Unity are really depressing. There are all these like really lame stock photos. But look at this, this says Unity. It's a bunch of multi-ethnic people from different uh, genders and backgrounds, but they still got the, the awkward white guy doing the missing high five. Like, we get such, a, we get such bad rap that us white guys can't high five. But, but here is this, this great stock photo of Unity. And I think for the most part, We're pretty content with living a stock photo of of unity. We're pretty content coming here to church, talking to a couple people that we know, saying everybody's welcome, and not talking to one person, not sharing life with people, not willing to get in the down and the dirty and do hard life with people. Or we meet some friends and all of a sudden that they raise their kids differently than you and so you're like, oh, I'm done with you, right? There's a million reasons why we start separating from each other. And I think we just tolerate that we do the stock photo unity. We come and we worship and we leave. And that's great. But if we can move from being a stock photo to the real picture of unity, like real people who love each other, who live with one another, who belong to one another, who weep when others weep, who celebrate when, when others celebrate, then all of a sudden we are this picture of what God has for us. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul just lays it out really simply and clearly. He says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And what is this calling? It's to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient and bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you want to know what it looks like to be unified, then that's what it is. To be completely humble, that is not going to sell. To be patient, to be long-suffering, and to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love this next picture because this is not a stock photo. This is our dirty, sweaty high school kids at the end of Chick a couple weeks ago. Nothing stock photo about that. Even Tisley—not look at her. She's not even smiling. She's, a, she's like, I'm so sweaty. This is my fourth picture. I love this picture because this is our church. This is what unity looks like. And for those of you who've been out of high school a long time, you don't realize that high school is the last time in your whole life that you have to be with people that you don't like. (laughs) After high school, you get to pick your classes, you get to pick your roommates, you get to pick where you live, you get to pick where you work, you get to pick every place you are. And if you don't like it, you move on. But in high school, you have to be with people. You have to sit in English class with them. If you're a youth group, you have to ride on a bus and go on a plane with them. You have to do life together. And it's hard, and they do it. And what I love about this picture is here they are. This is like 45 people total of people from every walk of life, every background, every socioeconomic background, every theological starting point. We have people from all over parts parts, different parts of the world in this picture. And they are here together, living life, because they're trying to figure out what it means to know and love God. And it is real life. And it is earthy and it is smelly and there's fights and there's challenges and because they're high schoolers, they don't know any better so they have to work it out and they have to make it work. And thanks to Shelly and Ben and our high school leaders, they are crushing it right now. And what an example for us as a church to not just find the people that work for us, but this is our church. We are the people that have been given by God to live life together. And so maybe by God's grace, we'd be willing to step out just a tiny little bit and to offer our lives, and to do life with people who are different. Because Jesus is the head. He's called us to do incredible things. But we have to do that in a way that is humble and gentle and full of peace. Let me pray for us. And then, in fact, why don't you stand with me? We're going to continue in worship. But let me pray for us as we wrap up our time together. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, we thank you that you love us, that you are so patient with us, so long-suffering with us, that you've given us so much bandwidth and running room to work out what it means to know you and to love you. And we do. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the way that you've saved us, and we worship you and we honor you. But God, don't let us just have the words pointed to you. May our lives actually reflect that reality. May we be so enamored with your goodness and grace and forgiveness that we would be so free to extend that to one another. That we would be willing to live life, to belong to people who are different than us, who raise kids differently than us, who are just strange and weird and are hard to be with. May we extend them grace and mercy. May we be completely humble. May we be united by the bond of peace. Because behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So we glorify you with our words. And as we leave here, God, we long to glorify you with our lives and our bodies. And we sing these songs as we lean into this reality. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen.